Good morning, church. It's been a joy to worship with you this morning. Glad you're here. And uh, if you're here for the first time, we're, uh, we're just extra glad that you're here as well. Uh, I do know that some people are here for the first time. Um, all the way from Ukraine via Poland, arriving in uh, Winnipeg on Tuesday and here this morning. So come on up, guys. Uh, we, we're just thrilled to be able to welcome for the first time in our midst um, uh, um, another Ukrainian couple that we as a church have, uh... <laughs> sure, you can just surround them if you want there on either side. <laughs> okay, well, you know some of these faces, Viola and Ivan at the end, their husband and wife. And we helped bring them uh, over here in June, and then we promptly married them, right? <clears throat> Are you still happy? <laughs> Blink twice really fast if you need help. <laughs> they seem very happy, and we're just thrilled to build a relationship with them. And we're also thrilled uh, that due to uh, your generosity and the goodness of God, uh, we have been able to bring over to settle in our community Viola's brother and his wife, Jack and Diana Pericastrova. So welcome here. Welcome here. And um, I'm going to see if, uh, I don't know, Viola, if you were prepared to say anything, but do you want to tell us a little bit about your brother and your sister-in-law? What do you want us to know? <laughs> he didn't tell me something about it. <laughs> So, yeah, he's 22 and she's 21 and they were living in Poland for how long? For nine months. And they were waiting for their visas so much because they were so tired to live in Poland because there are a lot of Ukrainians. Like now you'll see in Winnipeg a lot of Ukrainians. Not, no, it's not a lot. Like, And... It was hard time for them to live there, and like they are so so happy, and they are enjoying every second here, and they are so lucky to be here, as they told us, and they are so thankful to all the church for your help and for your support, and to all the community. Thanks to Rachel and Steve so much. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, she is a sinner. And she's a graphic designer, and Jack is, I don't know, <laughs> a great guy <laughs> who, want to, who wants to do everything which he could and who likes new experience. And, like, he had, uh, he had an experience in marketing, sales, and stuff like this, but now... His English is not perfect as Ukrainian language, and yeah, he wants to he wants to work in the bakery, and he he's looking for this opportunity. Yeah, so that's something about them. So Jack is looking for a job. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're letting us know what he can do. Yeah. That yeah yeah <laughs> he would be a great employee. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, you represented them well. And um, I'm going to pray just a prayer over them, a blessing, 
as they uh, build a life here for however long God has them here. We don't presume that this is their final stop necessarily in life, but we're just going to love them as much as we can, however long God has them here. And um, so just take opportunity after the service to introduce yourself, say hi. And if, uh, you know, you want to know any of the needs that they might have as they try to settle here, they don't have a, a home yet to live in. I think they're maybe using a guest room in, in your home for the time being, but that's not a permanent arrangement. Um, if you want to know any way you can help, if you speak with uh, Rachel Clark, any members of the Ukraine kind of support team, um, they, they can help you know how you can help. So would you pray with me uh, over, over um, uh, them, really all four of them? God, we thank you that... Um, that your plan is good, Lord, and even in the midst of war and trial and suffering, God, you are still good. You are still in control. You still have a plan. And um, God, we just are excited to have seen your hand at work, first of all, bringing Ivan and Viola here, and now being able to bring over um, Jack and Diana and uh, just help them, Lord, um, move forward in life. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that this place, Stonewall, this church would be a place of uh, great benefit, of blessing, of growth, of joy for them in life, Lord, that they would be able to build really happy, supportive relationships, Lord, that you would provide meaningful work and meet all of their needs, Lord, and um, uh, just show us as a church how we can come alongside and support them. So, God, we thank you that you have brought them here and we're excited, God, to see what you have in store for them and for our relationship. So, um, Lord, bless, bless this all. In your son's name, Jesus, we pray. And together we say, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So Thank, you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Viola alluded to the fact that um, obviously they know some English uh, and they're going to they're gonna learn better English quick, I'm sure, uh, but they, they can carry on basic conversation, and on Tuesday when I had the opportunity to meet them for the first time, had some good conversation, uh, but, but speaking with them, of course, Ukrainian being a Slavic language and just navigating that, it brought back to my mind a memory I had totally forgotten about uh, up, up until chatting with them. When I was in Macedonia, spent a summer there years ago, actually when I was first engaged to Erica, and uh, Macedonian is a Slavic language as well, a lot of commonalities, and... Um, uh, I wanted to honor the language of the people I'd been invited uh, by a friend to this home to have a share a meal with these, uh, this couple. And um, Macedonia had great cheese, great cheese. And the Macedonian word for cheese is, um, well, I thought it was srenya. I'm looking over, I don't know if that's common in, in Ukrainian. But um, I just compliment, kept, kept complimenting the srenya, oh, to this couple. This srenya, so I've never had such good srenya. And, and they seemed like something was a little, how they were reacting, a little off. And so finally, after I said it a few times, my friend pulled me aside and said, Rusty, cheese is srenya. Srenya is bullshit. Oh, that explains the reaction. Okay. Isn't language fun? These little differences. Uh, how do you say cheese in Ukrainian? Sin? 
Sin. I can't do that roller thing for the, for the life of me. Uh, I've got the fattest, laziest tongue in the whole world. I just can't do it. Um, anyway, I just felt so humiliated, and that memory came back to me. So you're going to have some of those experiences, I'm sure. Uh, and, and maybe you can think of a time when you felt humiliated. We all have those moments when we were humbled. And if you've got a story like that, I'd love to hear it. You know, this passage that we're going to look at uh, in Philippians chapter 2 contains what theologians call the humiliation of Christ. Now, that word humiliation, whenever we use it, it has a negative connotation, which is kind of interesting because what's the root word of humiliation? It's humility, right? And, and for us, especially us who know Jesus Christ, we, we, we know that humility is actually a, a virtue. Humility is a good thing. Um, but to the Greeks of the day in which Paul was writing, hum- humility was not seen as a virtue. It was not something you pursued. Humility was associated with slaves. Uh, it was not a virtue. It was the absence of glory. And what you were to pursue back uh, in Paul's day was not humility, but you were to pursue glory. And yet in this passage, we're going to look at Paul is calling us as followers of Jesus to humility, to be humble as Jesus Christ was humble. And so in our time this morning, I really want to answer and ask, uh, or answer three questions. What is humility? Because he's going to call us to humility. How was Christ humble? And then thirdly, how can we be humble like Christ? And so as we continue in the book of Philippians, and if you've been with us, you know that we're, we're going through this a few verses at a time. It's a little letter, profound letter Paul wrote to the church in Philippi almost 2,000 years ago. And uh, we find ourselves now at the beginning of chapter 2, where he's going to share with us four if clauses, okay? He says, first of all, if you have any encouragement with being united with Christ, and I mean, is there anything that lifts the spirits more than knowing that you belong to Christ, that you, you are, you, that you are His? He says, if you are encouraged from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from His love, if you have any common sharing in His Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion from Him. And what I want you to to know is He's not saying you might and you might not. What He's really saying is He's not talking about a possibility. He's talking about this is a certainty. He's saying if you have this, and you most certainly do as a follower of Jesus, so it might be better to, to understand this, not as, as, or use the word since, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have comfort from His love, since you share in His Spirit, since you have His tenderness and compassion, He'll say, live with one mind, live in one spirit, live in unity, in oneness. How? He says, do, in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That word for selfish ambition he used earlier in, the, uh, in this little letter. It was translated rivalry. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. It was a word that Aristotle used. 
uh, who lived and, and wrote before Paul's lifetime. It's a word Aristotle used in, in, a, in a book called Politica, his book, book on political philosophy. Essentially selfish ambition there uh, in the, uh, when he was thinking about politics was looking for uh, an opening, looking maybe for a weakness in someone else, an opponent, a gap where you can step in and take something from yourself, using force to seize something for yourself, power. He says, do not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but do what? Now, what's the flip side of that? But in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Be humble with one another. But what is humility? What is humility? Maybe you've heard uh, this definition, which says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You can throw that up there, Christian. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You know, there are a few false humilities that kind of masquerade as the real thing that we need to, to be on the lookout for. Paul didn't say, think of yourself as a nobody. He didn't say, think of yourself as someone who has no value. He said, don't value yourself higher than others. In fact, value others higher than yourself. You know, some people, they understand humility maybe is almost like a self-pitying spirit, right? To have a low opinion of myself, I'm a nobody, can't do anything, right? I'm not, I'm not that good. I'm not that smart. I don't really have anything to give. I'm not very gifted. You know, to get really down on, on oneself, kind of the self-loathing spirit, think of oneself as a nobody, sometimes I think that can masquerade as, as humility, and that's not what Paul is talking about here. He doesn't say thinking of yourself as a nobody, thinking less of yourself. C.S. Lewis, that great writer, thinker of the last century, he said this. He said, do not, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. I don't know what that means to be smarmy. A greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you had to say to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility, for he will not be thinking about himself at all. So when Paul says, be humble, he's not talking about having a low view of oneself. But he's, but he's also making clear that humility is not promoting oneself. It is the opposite of self-promotion because humility can actually be pride in disguise. And I think especially like in the church as Christians, right? Because we're, you know, we're, we're too smart to know that pride isn't found in the biggest house and the nicest car and the most money, right? Trying to seek praise from people for the, that sort of worldly success. We're too smart for that. How, how does self-promotion come out in us? Well, maybe it comes out, that pride comes out disguised as humility when we try to seek attention or praise, not with worldly success, but with spiritual service, right? 
it, we can ask ourselves, how, how can I make myself look humble? And as soon as you ask yourself, how can I make myself look humble? You're not humble, right? Because humility is not thinking of yourself at all. But we have to be on guard against this false type of humility, right? Where we serve, maybe, as, as a means of, of getting praise and accolades from people. Oh, look at, look at him. Look, look, what he, look what he's done. Wow, what a sacrificial person. And that, feels, that can feel good, right? To be recognized and praised for one's humility. And if it bothers us that we don't receive the praise or the credit that we're due for our service, maybe that's a sign that actually what we're dealing with is pride. Humility is to serve others for their own sake. So maybe that's, that, that's um, an indicator that actually we have pride in disguise if we get bothered when our service, with our sacrifice, is not recognized. When someone else receives that recognition, when someone else is put in a place of service that I wanted to be put into. Humility is not putting yourself down, but lifting others up, Jesus will show us. Andrew Murray, another great writer of the last century, he said this, The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praise while he is forgotten because he has received the spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and who sought not his own honor. Therefore, in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he has put on the heart of compassion, of kindness, of meekness, of long-suffering and humility. Jesus teaches us how to be humble, Paul says. In verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. So how is Jesus humble? Have the same mindset as that of Jesus Christ. And now Paul's going to share with us the humiliation of Christ. And he's going to give us this picture, kind of this poignant picture, and, and, and theologians wonder if this was actually a hymn already that had developed that they sang or they recited in church gatherings early in the church, because it kind of has that form to it. But what it paints us a picture of is the descent of Jesus Christ. And, and it's almost this picture of Jesus stepping down a ladder one step at a time, lower and lower. So, so think of this as we go through this, almost like there's a pit and Jesus is standing at the top and he throws down a rope ladder to the bottom of the pit and he's climbing down this ladder one rung at a time to get to the bottom. And so I, I see here there are six steps down in this descent of Christ. It's important to know, Paul wants us to know who Jesus Christ is because right? that helps us to understand how incredible his humility is when he understands who Jesus Christ is. Paul says in verse 6, Jesus, who being in very nature God, that word very nature is the word your might, yours might say in the form of God, morphe. Uh, he could have chosen the word Greek word morphe or schema. Schema would be like an outward expression of something, like a costume. But morphe means the essence, the very essence or being, the very nature of something or someone. And he says that Jesus is, in his very nature, God. Jesus is divine. He shares equality with God, His Father. 
This is who he is. So this first step down in verse 6, Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Your version might say something to be grasped or clung to. Jesus did not cling to. Now, sometimes we can cling or try to grasp things that don't belong to us. I don't have it and I want it, so I'm going to cling to it. And that's not what this represents. Jesus, the one who is the creator of the world, enthroned in heaven, who is worthy of all praise, all honor, all worship. That's his by right. But he doesn't demand it. He doesn't cling to it. Jesus, it says, he, he opens his hands on all that which is his by right. That's the first step of humility. He did not cling but that second step in verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Your version might say, rather Jesus emptied himself. Now some people wonder, in what way did Jesus empty himself? Is he saying that like he kind of, he poured out all his godness so that like he didn't have any of those divine attributes? And we see in his life, that's not true for him. To empty himself doesn't mean he kind of stopped um, uh, being divine, divesting himself of all those attributes. For he healed the sick, he calmed the storm with his word, he raised the dead to life, he fed the hungry, he knew the thoughts of all people. He was God, but yet he never used any of that for his own benefit to serve himself. In other words, this belonged to him. This was in his bank account, and never once did he make a withdrawal of what belonged to him for his own sake. He would make a withdrawal for the sake of you, for the sake of others, but he never made a withdrawal for his own sake to satisfy his hunger, to, have, to heal himself, to avoid death. Instead, he took the nature of a servant. And Paul continues, another step down. He emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is the incredible reality, mystery of the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas time. God becomes man. God takes on flesh. That word, morphe, that we saw, he is in the very morphe, essence of God. Now he's in the very morphe, essence of humanity, of humankind. Jesus shares fully in our humanity. He doesn't just put on a disguise. He doesn't just try it out. He shares fully in the human experience. He becomes fully a human being, you know, as I was thinking about this, a memory came back when I was a kid. Now, I know my mom watches this on Mondays. So I love you, mom. <laughs> Disclaimer. No. My mom's a great lady. She's very spunky. She has an adventurous spirit. And sometimes it gets her in trouble. Like the time she was at the church women's retreat and they were driving by all the women that were outside and she like mooned them from the... <laughs> yeah, there's heard about that all. I, I, I think that's hilarious, personally. Um, but, um, yeah, I remember as a kid, she, she had this idea of how, pulling a, a prank. Now, my, my, my dad was the pastor. My mom was the pastor's wife. 
So she had this idea of pulling this prank. She was going to dress up as a bag lady, and she was going to, like a homeless woman, and she was going to go to the door of people in the church and knock and ask for, for help. And so uh, she went to this one gentleman in our church. We'd been in their house many times, of course, close friends. And she was so disguised that no one, you, you didn't know it was her. And she was dressed up like a homeless woman. And she was looking for bottles that she could bring, you know, to the depot to buy a bus ticket. And uh, this person whose house she went to worked at the bottling company in town. We knew his house, his basement was full of empty bottles. And so she went and she asked for bottles. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I can't help you. I don't have anything. And then she left. And I guess he felt bad, you know, he felt convicted, so he got in his car and he drove and he found her, and that's when she had to reveal that this is, I'm your pastor's wife, ta-da! She knocked on another guy's door from church. He was kind of spooked out. He thought it was odd. He thought she was scouting out the house to be robbed later. He called the cops. The cops were driving around the city looking for my mom. Um, and so he thought he was going to make a citizen's arrest. So later he went to find the person himself. He was so concerned and he accosted my mom. When my mom said, ta-da, I'm your pastor's wife. And uh, good, good times, good times. Yeah, my dad had to navigate that one. I love my mom, just that adventurous spirit. But uh, you know what? What Paul is saying is Jesus didn't put on a disguise here, right? He didn't just like look like, but, but the essence was something else. Jesus was fully human as you and I are. He experienced it all. Loss, pain, sickness, betrayal, hunger, everything. He entered into a woman's womb the size of the end of a pin and allowed himself to grow and was born and lived the fullness of the human experience. And he takes another step down. Verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. You might think, well, that's just redundant. It's saying again he's a man. But that's actually another step down because we've already discovered that he's in the form of God, in the form of man. Jesus is God made flesh. He is the God man. And yet when people saw him, now this is that word schema, form. He just looked to their eyes like just an average dude. No special treatment, no praise, just a normal man. Here the creator of the universe in their midst, and all they think is here's just a man. He was found in appearance as a man, no praise, no accolades, no adoration, none of what he was due. And he humbled himself and he took a step lower and Paul said, Jesus became obedient to death. He drank the human experience down to the very dregs at the bottom of the cup. You ever get to the bottom of the cup? You know, you drink some of that powerful coffee, the espresso type, you know? And it's just that bitter, the hard grounds at the bottom and you just, you don't drink those. What Paul is saying is he drank the human experience right down to the dregs. He became obedient to death. But then he took even a step lower, a sixth step. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you know enough about the cross to know that the cross was a terrible experience. In fact, in Roman times, it was considered the most agonizing, humiliating way to die. It was reserved only for the worst of the worst. 
In fact, it was so awful that, that it was against the law in the Roman Empire for a Roman citizen to be crucified. It was just too brutal. They would, they would kill them in more humane ways. But never with the cross. In fact, Cicero, the Roman writer of that time, he would say, Far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thoughts, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. It was that terrible. Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so we have this picture of this humiliation of Jesus as he steps lower and lower and lower, right to the very bottom of the pit where you are, where I am. And so St. Augustine, he would describe the humility of Jesus Christ this way. He would say that Jesus, the maker of man, became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied by the journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust. That he, discipline, might be scourged with whips. That he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross. That courage might be weakened. That security might be wounded. That life might die. That's the humility of Jesus. He did not cling to what was his. But he descended. He emptied himself to take the form of a servant. He came all the way down. And that's what we remember at, at, at Christmas, the incarnation. Jesus came all the way down. In fact, John, the gospel writer John, he describes the, uh, the incarnation of Jesus famously in the words of John chapter 1, verse 14, when he said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You've heard that before. Jesus, the word, became flesh, became a man, and he made his dwelling among us. Now, that word dwelling in, in our parlance is the most general word possible. In fact, if you look at the census for dwellings in Stonewall, it's just the word that can mean any living situation whatsoever, right? It's the most general word. It could be a mansion. It could be a castle. It could be a houseboat. It could be an apartment. It could be a condo. It could be a side-by-side. -side. It could be a house out in the burbs. It could be a trailer at the trailer park. A dwelling could be anything. But, but you need to know that word there that, that John used in Greek was actually a very specific word that literally means that the word became flesh and he set up camp. He set up his tent among us. Jesus is a camper. I knew it. I knew it. I just had this feeling like spiritual people like to camp and unspiritual people don't like to camp. Kind of, and now, there it is. I've got to tell my wife that. Break the news. Jesus set up tent among us. Skeneo is that Greek word. And it wasn't just a word for any tent. In fact, that was, that was the word for the tabernacle in the Old Testament. You might remember in the Old Testament that God, when he liberated his people from Egypt, he gave them very specific instructions to make for him a tent, a tabernacle. Because wherever they moved, he wanted to, his people lived in tents, and he wanted to live in a tent in the middle of his people. So that wherever they went and moved, he was there with them. But David wanted to build him a temple. Our God deserves a temple. He's an awesome God after all. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says that after the king David was settled in his own palace he had built, 
The Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am. I'm living in this palace, in this house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Do whatever you have in mind. Go ahead and do it. Build God a palace, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. That's that same word. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Why haven't you built me something nicer? Why haven't you built me a temple? I don't want a temple. I want to live in a tent. I want to be with the people where the people are. And this is this word. The word became flesh. It wasn't just any dwelling. And he set up tent with us. He came all the way down. And Paul says, have that same mindset with one another as Jesus Christ had. So Jesus shows us how to be humble. How do we grow in humility? Well, the first thing that I think we see in the humiliation of Christ is we all have an utter need for God's mercy. You know, there is a sense in which the humiliation of Jesus Christ was unique in its effect. It cannot be replicated because Jesus, in his humiliation, coming all the way to the bottom, he did that to rescue us from the pit because we could not be rescued any other way from sin, from brokenness, from death. So he came down all the way to the bottom of the pit to pick us up and to bring us out, to rescue us. We see the mercy of God, the compassion of God on us, which leaves no room for pride for any of us. And so Jesus will say in the Gospel of Luke, you have it recorded there, I think it's Luke 18, he gives a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector when talking about humility. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray one day, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, you know, like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector who's praying at the back, for I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. I know I'm a sinner, God, but I'm glad I'm not as bad as that guy. But the tax collector, Jesus said, stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, this second man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. The only way into the kingdom of God is to know your utter need for God's mercy. You will never meet another person more in need of the mercy of God than you. Did you know that? And that will change the way you relate to people and to God. You will never meet another human being that is more in need of the mercy of God than you are. And praise be to God, He has given us all the mercy that we need in Jesus Christ. God has compassion on you. And this is what we see in the humility of Christ. He came to save us from our sin because we were at the bottom of the pit. We had no way out, so he became the way. He came all the way down. He humbled himself. We have the compassion of God. And now, 
through his mercy, we have this exalted position with Jesus. We know that we're not nobodies. We know we're somebodies. We know now we have this worth that's assigned to us, not by ourselves or anybody around us, but by God himself, who has saved us from our sin and made a way for us to live with him forever. He has given us this exalted position through the humility of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we need to know in order to grow in humility is that we are in utter need of God's mercy. And once you know the mercy of God, that changes the way that you relate in your relationships, right, to other people, to those around you, to the world. Christ's compassion allows us to have compassion now on others. It allows us to go down to the bottom, to deny self, to lay oneself down, to serve others, to lift them up as Jesus has lifted us up. It's not just Jesus that lives in incarnational life. We too, as those who belong to him, we are called to live incarnationally. To go down. To be with. In order to lift up. We too are called to be incarnated. That's humility. And I think maybe a statement of humility um, a great way to think about it, James gives us in James chapter 1, verse 19. You can throw those words up on the screen there. You'll probably know this verse. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's a, that's a path of humility. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because don't we often kind of get those backwards? You know, what does defensiveness do? What does pride do? It's quick to speak, slow to listen. What does humility do? What did Jesus do? Quick to listen. Why? A, to know, that's, to know that you care. They won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You probably heard that. But to seek to understand, Jesus was a student of people. He didn't stand from the top and say, look the mess you made, get out of there, Change. Come up here. He went down to understand, to listen, to experience, so that he could help out. He was a student of people. To be quick to listen means to seek to understand. Jesus was always eating with all sorts of people. He ate with the Pharisees. He ate with the sinners. He took a lot of flack for that. Who is this guy? He's supposed to be holy, the Holy One of God, and he's eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners? He goes and he sees Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, come out of that tree. No one wanted to have anything to do with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, come out of that tree. I got to go to your house. What was he doing at his house? Listening. Before he spoke, he spoke. But first, listen, because Jesus was a listener. Jesus sought to understand. And so you see this story, in, in the powerful story in John chapter 8. Maybe you know the story, right? They caught this woman in the act of adultery, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they brought her into the temple where Jesus was, and they said, Jesus, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says we've got to stone this woman to death. What do you say? And what did Jesus do? It says he got on his knee and he started drawing in the dirt. And people have wondered, what in the world is Jesus doing? Is he writing something? Is it code? 
It doesn't say what he was writing. It just says he went down and he started writing in the dirt, and it says they kept questioning him over and over again. Jesus, we caught this woman. What should we do? And you get the sense they had to question him over and over again. So what is he doing? He's taking time. He's taking time not to rush to an answer, not to rush to judgment. He's going to listen. He's going to think. And after he's quick to listen, he gets up. And maybe you know how the story goes. Well, whoever's without sin, you can be the first one to throw a stone at her. Well, kind of excluded them all, unfortunately for them. They were kind of looking forward to a good stoning. So one by one, they dropped their stone and they left. And it was just Jesus and the woman. And he said, has no one condemned you? No, Lord, no one's condemned me. Well, then neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. He spoke. He spoke what she needed to hear, but not after he listened. Not after he cared, not after he sought to understand. Humility always means speaking the truth and acting according to the truth, but always doing so in love. And love listens. Love seeks to understand. So Jesus shows us this third way. You know, like I think religious people, so to speak, religiosity you know, that, that spirit of the Pharisees, they just want to exact judgment. They stand at the top looking down into the pit saying, you need to get out of there. You need to change. A judgmental spirit. That's the religious spirit. The opposite way, the other way I would call maybe the way of secularism, the way of humanism. You just go down to people wherever they are, not to try to change anything or to help, it's just to say, you're okay right here. You're okay, right? Just stay right there. Just stay right there. Just affirm, 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 but never calling, never calling to something better, never calling to something higher. Just, it's okay at the bottom of the pit. But Jesus shows us this third way, the way of Christ-like humility, which comes all the way down, which listens and seeks to understand so that one can help, so that one can lift up. So maybe humility, maybe a good definition is this, humility is seeking to understand and then seeking to uplift. You can throw those words up there, Christian. Seeking to understand and then seeking to uplift. Right? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Not to lift up oneself, but to lift up another. For Paul said, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Because Christ has compassion on us, we can have compassion on others. Because Christ has lifted us up, we can go down. We don't need to lift up ourselves. We don't need praise. We can lift up others. This spirit of Christ-like humility, I guess, um, I see in what I consider my favorite Canadian Christmas carol. And I call it my favorite Canadian Christmas carol because I think it's the only Canadian Christmas carol. But I think it's really good. I don't know that I've ever sung it in a church. But I actually find it a very beautiful song. It's called the Huron Carol. Do you know the Huron Carol? 
It was written in the 1600s by a French Catholic priest, Jean Brebeuf. Jean, um, he left France and he'd come to the New World and he'd come to the Huron people that live in present day around Georgian Bay. And he was a little bit of a different priest than others who kind of came triumphantly, right, to, to these people that they looked down on and they felt self-righteous to, kind of the savage or whatever, to, to, just to come and to deliver the good news of Jesus in a way that took no care for who they were, right? Jean Brebeuf was a little bit different. He had great compassion and love for these people. He became one of them. And he lived with them for years, and he learned all their customs. And he learned their language. And then he wrote what we know in English is called the Huron Carol. In uh, the Huron language, it's Jesus Hatania. And it tells the good news of Jesus in a way that he thought maybe these people could understand. And um, I find the lyrics beautiful. "'Twas in the moon of wintertime when all the birds had fled that mighty Gitchi Manitou, which was their word for Creator God, sent angel choirs instead. Before their light the, the stars grew dim and wandering hunters heard the hymn, "'Jesus, your King is born, Jesus is born.'" Within a lodge of broken bark the tender babe was found. A ragged robe of rabbit skin unwrapped his beauty round. But as the hunter braves drew nigh, the angel song rang loud and high, Jesus, your king is born, Jesus is born. The earliest moon of winter time is not so round and fair as was the ring of glory on the helpless infant there. The chiefs from far before him knelt with gifts of fox and beaver pelt. Jesus, your king is born, Jesus is born. He went down where they were to help lift them up. He sought to understand. And on March 16th, 1649, he was captured with uh, a group of their, of the tribesmen. And uh, he was tortured and killed alongside them. March 16th, 1649. John said in his first letter, 1 John 3:16, this is how we know what love is. God laid down his life. So we also ought to lay our lives down for one another. We are called to Christ-like humility. So I want us to go to God for a moment and ask him to speak to us. How is it that you need to grow in humility? What would it look like for you to put this word into practice in your relationships, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your house? within this church body, within our world, in which it is so easy just to be defensive, in which to be judgmental, instead of going and seeking to understand so you can seek to uplift? What would it look like to be humble as Christ is humble in our relationships? Let's just take a moment um, before I, before I close in prayer, I just want to give you an opportunity personally to talk to God. Just put that question before him. Let's pray together. Just ask God, God, would you show me what it would look like in my life, in my relationships to practice this humility?
maybe you want to ask him if there's any, any way, um, any relationship there where that's, where that's lacking, where you need to grow in that. Just listen to God. We thank you, Father, that um, in your love for us, because you have compassion on us, sinful people, broken, subject to death, that you, uh, you did not cling onto your son, but you let him go. I thank you, Father. We thank you that your son left his throne and stepped down from there and took these steps down this ladder, down to the very bottom of the pit, even to the cross, Lord, to make a way for us out, to make a way for us up, or just to know your love, to be with you forever, to have the life that you created us to have. So God, we just thank you for the humility of your son, Jesus. And Lord, now we hear this call to live like that, and that's not something that we can do in our own power, strength. We need your spirit, God. Just enable us to live this way, to reject pride, to reject uh, the desire for human praise, uh, to reject selfishness, to reject defensiveness, but just to consider how we can value others above ourselves, how we can lift up others because you have lifted up us. So God, as, as we go from here, would you, uh, would you direct our steps and would you help us grow in the humility of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.